0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and John is back in the lab with me. And we are working on Leo Marx's The Machine in the Garden. The last one, which you should go back and listen to if you haven't heard this one, is on The Garden. And this chapter is on The Machine, and it's called The Machine. And this is his attempt to take a look at how America receives 19th century industrialization. He starts towards the end of the 18th century with some well-known and one deeply obscure and strange character who had a bigger impact than you might think on the course of American history, all the way up until about Whitman's time. So right around the 1860s, 1870s. I mean, Whitman lived longer than that, but Leaves of grass is kind of our jumping off point, just in terms of the timeline for this chapter. Before we get into this, John, what are some of your overall thoughts about this chapter?
1: One of the interesting things that comes up right away is when we look at Jefferson in England. He's looking at a factory there. And he seems positive about steam and like steam technologies and what they might mean for America, which pointed to something, which we talked about, you know, before the show is there seems to be this initial, like the machine is not really the same thing as workshops, Mm
0: -hmm. which is
1: not really the same thing as pastoral. You know, like these things are not really connected into greater concepts right now. So Jefferson is able to look at new technology, It has no a priori integration into like industrial wage, slave and boss system that he is sort of skeptical about. That's something I never really thought about, but it's, it points to the ways in which there are a lot of interesting periods in American history where the constellation of ideas are actually quite foreign to us beneath the surface.: um.
0: I think so too. I think that's a good point. It happens right at the beginning. So the first part of this, as we're talking about, has to deal has to do with when Jefferson goes overseas to England and he sees these manufacturers, and they're about his response to that, because we ended the last chapter talking about the Jeffersonian idea of the pastoral and its enduring legacy in America. And so it's it's an interesting way to kick off this chapter because one of the things that you understand is that in Jefferson's mind, he's already making a distinction between how this plays out in England and Europe and how it's going to play out in America. And a lot of that has to do with geography where he's like, okay, so we have like these dense urban areas or whatever, and this isn't quite the satanic mills era yet, but he's like, you know, this will be dispersed enough across the land and it will be integrated into our land in a new way, or at least he's starting to encounter that idea. I mean, it is just nowhere near what it will become within the next, almost within his lifetime, frankly. You know, because he dies, I want to say, in the 1820s or early 1830s, and we'll get to Thomas Carlyle and his Signs of the Times essay. And that comes out, like, right around then, right? So, like, when Edgar Allan Poe starts his... Freshman year at UVA Thomas Jefferson had died the spring before that fall. Right. Mm. So they just missed each other at UVA. So I know that it's like around that time, which is also one of those, this is a very young country type responses to have. So I, I definitely think that's interesting. Cause I think we're going to talk about the Newtonian here and like I how know. that's important. And then I did not appreciate, this is my overall comment on this and then we'll dig into the chapter. I did not appreciate the departure or the shift in perspective that romanticism meant for the intellectual class. I really did not understand that, like, just exactly how deep and different that was because of its jump-off point from the Newtonian mechanistic worldview. Right. And Because I've also been reading The Education of Henry Adams. He's in Germany, you know, in the mid-19th century. And he's talking about how, like, you know, Calhoun is over there with him. You know, and they're all like young Harvard men in Germany. And they're all supposed to be reading Goethe. Like, he doesn't really give a shit about it. He's just kind of there being like, what the hell am I doing here? But, you know, this is an important, the sort of like German romantic transmission to the Anglosphere played a way bigger role in this than I previously appreciated. So I thought that this was a very helpful through Thomas Carlyle. Again, we'll get to him through him bringing us to that, because those of you who are listening, you'd be like, well, who cares about romanticism? Why are we talking about this? Basically the romantic paradigm is except for some like hardcore, like E slash acceleration boosters in Silicon Valley. Is the dominant cultural paradigm through which we review our interaction with technology. Like that is how we think of it. You might not even know you think about it that way, but you do, you know, and we'll sort of explain what that means in the same way that it's like, you know, I was reading some stuff Spencer Clavin sent me that he's working on the, and I don't want to say too much about this, but like one of the things that I didn't appreciate until reading some of Spencer's stuff was. The way in which my mind still assumed we live in a Newtonian world, even though I'm like, how like how long past special relativity are we? Like a hundred years, something like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, so these things have a longer half-life and it deeply informs the environmental movement and all sorts of stuff that happens afterwards. Romanticism does. So I think we can just sort of like leapfrog over Jefferson because we already got that wind in our sails. And we need to talk about the improbably named obscure American mini Benedict Arnold, (laughs) the Pennsylvania manufacturer, Tench Cox. (laughs) So, John, I don't know about you, but I thought this discussion of Tench Cox was like incredibly surprising. It was like this strange chestnut that I felt started to unpack the politics of the early American Republic.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I think it was kind of really what I wanted to gesture towards. And I mentioned the, the bit about Jefferson earlier, but I'd want to get ahead of myself was the very interesting constellation of ideas that informed his public affairs work on behalf of the machine, I guess you could say.
0: Mm. And, and this, is- you mean Tenchcox? public affairs work
1: yeah Tim yeah. cox the way in which he characterized machines in general and like their place in america and how that would be in a way far more subtle thing to come after
0: him <laughs>
1: you know, interesting for the the worldview that it had suggested the like behind it this you know he has his own sort of qualities as well. Like you said, he was played both sides of the Revolutionary War. I think that's kind of suggested as why no one knows about him today. What is he? John Quincy Adams called him a wily, winding, subtle, and insidious character. <laughs> but Leo March says, well, this is probably why he better than anyone else was able to see the way the land was blowing, but also to play that into the commonly held beliefs and sentiments of the American public at large of that time into the most interesting fusion of the machine and the pastoral, I think, happening kind of at its outset rather than later.
0: Yeah, that was shocking. So to let everybody know, Tench Cox, like we said, he comes out of the revolution had played both sides. There are, as we talked about last time, and this is sort of It's more complicated than this, but this is sort of our American mythos around the post-founding era, is that there's a tension between are we going to live in a Jeffersonian world or a Hamiltonian world? And what's that going to look like? And Hamilton's report on the manufacturers is seen as one possible route. And then Jefferson's like general body of thought is seen as another, you know, and we talked about that last time. So people, I'm not going to relitigate that here, but Tenchcox is seen as somebody who has like John said, a handle on the way in which America can receive the idea of industrialization. And he comes, fascinatingly, to some similar conclusions that Jefferson does upon visiting the manufacturers in England, except he articulates it. He's like the perfect sophist, right? Like that's, because really he's doing this to advance his own ends as a manufacturer in Pennsylvania, and he wants the state to basically like give him carve-outs and like help him run his business along with everybody else uh, in that state, right? Because this is back when states are bigger entities to us than they are now that we have a big federal government. So states play a huge role in, in uh, how politics shakes out. Now, Tench Cox suggests, this is what John meant by, we get this sort of surprisingly sophisticated pastoral synthesis of it is he sees the machine as enmeshed with the American landscape. So it is both the sort of Protestant improvement culture that we've talked about before, where the, even if it's beautiful, it's a wasteland. If you're not improving it. Mm -hmm. And, And I would say this sort of like the vastness of the American landscape. Protecting society from all of the potential Ills of industrialization. So the rivers are so big and virgin that they can handle way more runoff than anybody thinks. The land itself can't be totally dominated by the industrial impetus because there's frankly just too much land to do that. It will become, by nature of the fact that it's happening in the new world and because of the geography of the new world, very different from the cramped, suffocating industrial world. That is starting to take shape in England that will really have its leap off point in the 19th century. I mean, I've done my own historiography about like the nature of the Industrial Revolution. That's what we'll call it. It's a little bit of a misnomer, but we do understand that as this incredible moment in time. And I think that what Leo Marx wants to point out is that. Tanch Cox understands the only way in which his countrymen will accept this idea. They will not see it as an encroachment on their land or an expansion of government or of some darker Faustian powers in their mists, but that it is part of the Newtonian mechanistic worldview, right? So, you know, We are all men are created uh, equal by the creatureliness under nature's God, right? Mm -hmm. That phrase or God of nature is in the declaration and indicates an already Newtonian relationship with nature and between men. Tenchcox is sort of playing on that when he's like, This the mechanisms of our society will be wedded to the mechanism that is nature. Nature is not this sort of perfect harmonious eden but for man's intervention that type of thinking about it hasn't really happened yet that comes of like almost 30 years after tenchcock is doing this he's doing this in the late 18th century right so right after the founding of the republic and that's his take on it right it is the middle link That Leo Marx is always talking about. And that is what Tench Cox has a savvy for. And Leo Marx indicates that what separates Tench Cox from Hamilton is his ability to rhetorically cater to the yeoman class and say, this isn't a threat to you. In fact, it can be integrated into your life in a way that can only improve it. You can only improve your life through the use of industry and technology, right? Whereas Hamilton is way less rhetorically savvy and it's basically like i don't care about farmers i want mills shut up and do it
1: <laughs> yeah it's like an interesting proposition that will say nuclear reactor and like a mountain are not different in kind but only perhaps in like a range which i think as we were saying you're hinting earlier like That is the only worldview with which we are roughly familiar experientially now is that technology and nature are sort of like oppositional, like primeval forces Mm -hmm. like that came together at the beginning of time to create all things. That was not necessarily always the way that people have looked at it. Pretty close to home, like even at that time in America, that was not exactly how people with some educational background looked at it. And, you know, whether or not Tinchcox was purely mercenary, I think it's an interesting idea. And it's interesting that it had time here before kind of being eradicated more or less entirely. Like while we maintain Newtonianism as like the background of our thinking, we did not maintain this idea that there's not a stark ontological separation between like the things that we build and the things that we found before we built things, to put it in a certain way. And yeah. like the consequences of that for the way that we then talk about technology, you know, it's fascinating. And it's also like if you've been to Monticello, like he says in the book, there's mm-hmm. so many like gadgets everywhere that Jefferson was constantly like building. Like he created this thing where basically it was a crazy machine that connected to his writing pen that would create a copy of whatever he was writing next to him. Just stuff like that. And you can see that there's this completely different vision of like what a machine is and what technology is and how he was integrating the things that he built into his like sort of yeoman life up there on the mountain. You can see how a machine, something like works mechanically that like improves your life in some way, you could have a vision of taking root all across the country without disrupting the social fabric that was imagined to exist at that time. And there are good reasons for that. Like kind of the backdrop of all of this is the fact that America does not have the labor that Europe has it comes up a few times in this chapter. People are always saying like, we have want of hands for doing, you know, like filling these factories and things like but this is, for Tinch Cox, an argument in favor of the machine. Like, because we have want of hands, we now need things to make things doable with fewer people. And this will only help us as a country, and it won't fundamentally alter the way that you live. So don't worry about it. And, like, it'll just be good.
0: Yeah, it'll um, don't even worry about it. Like, well, because the other thing, and this is sort of an obscure point, but it's like, it is true that a lot of European cities started off as, like, medieval fortresses. You know, like the, all that walkable city stuff <laughs> it was like a fort, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's a very different landscape from the New England small town. Definitely. Very different than, okay, so Tenshcox is writing in what, like 1791? And then the, hold on, let me look this up that, real quick. Yeah, so the Midwest is created what we now call the Midwest just a few years prior to that in 1787. Which I is, again, to say,
1: like we have totally not gone different. that far west at this point yet. Like, no, no, easy no. to forget, I think.
0: Yeah, easy to forget, and also just like the way everybody should read John L. A. U. K. John Locke's "The Good Country: A History of the Midwest" from. 1800 to 1900, because I think it illuminates a lot of what's powerful about what Leo Marx is doing in helping us see the world. Tenchcox is seeing here because it's not bullshit entirely. It is totally reasonable to believe that there's going to be a very different integration of industrial technology socially into American life. It's just not going to be as urbanized. It takes a long time for us to get there.
1: And the idea that we would never get there was fairly pervasive. Cause you know, we're not yeah. Europe
0: that right. Everybody was like, well, we're not doing what they do and we're not yeah. doing it in their land and we're our own separate thing. You know, like we might be an offshoot, a weird bastard offshoot of European civilization, but there was real. Faith that this was like a totally new way of living that could be achieved in america
1: and I think like even with the railroad which we were about to come to and the steamboat and whatever, it's still like even with it's a big place, there's not that many people. It's easy to imagine that like with all of like we're still not going to resemble Europe, even with these forms of transportation and communication that have arisen. And I would say it's not really until like the genuine oil age that just started, mm-hmm. like everything changes in a way that was just unforeseeable uh, at this time, which mm-hmm. leads to seeming similarity you might imagine today.
0: I would say that, and because of my own area of focus, it's really the dawn of electricity. Yeah, that, like creates all sorts of consolidations and standardizations that were mm-hmm. never there before, and. You know, it's important that Henry Ford worked for an Edison utility before he ran Ford Motors. You know, some argue that his idea of the assembly line came directly out of his idea of managing constant power flow Mm -hmm. at an interconnection in the Midwest, you know, is that he saw these benefits of it always humming along seamlessly. Mm -hmm. That that was his, he was acculturated into thinking of it that way. Mass production has its own special thing. Uh, we're not going to get into that right now, but it is <laughs> deeply American. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, which was like to the horror of Germans who were still, for a long time, still doing like artisanal industrial stuff, you know? <laughs> anyway. So I think once we move out of Tenchcocks, right, we start to enter a different domain for Leo Marx, he's sort of saying, okay, so Jefferson said this, Tetch said this, which suggests that there are the seeds planted for a type of American ebullience, as he would say, in response to the machine, and that there are conceptual, cultural ways that we might see industrialization differently than everyone else. And that will have this uptake of the themes he's already spelled out for us. And then he does something. I was texting John about this. I was like, this was so cheeky. This part of the chapter is he's like, anyway, I'm going to go over to England now. And I'm going to talk about Thomas Carlyle. And for people who aren't aware, Thomas Carlyle is one of the earliest critics of industrialization, at least in the Anglosphere that I know of. Um, And that's sort of the role he plays here. And he has a big impact on all sorts of American thinkers, but if you're just reading this for the first time, you don't know that. Leo Marx begins this subsection of the chapter as if it's a non sequitur that he's Mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to talk about, you know, there are definitely American responses. He's like, don't worry about it. And then at the end of the chapter, he does something incredibly deft where he's just like, by the way, this particular Thomas Carlyle essay we're discussing, which is called Signs of the Times, is, has like a totally insane and deep, impact on like Hawthorne, Melville, like all these American heavy hitters right before they write their masterworks.
1: And I was, he introduces Carlyle by way of Schiller, which I thought the Schiller bit was interesting, full of possibility. I was Mm -hmm. kind of sad that it didn't get more time. It kind of gets developed a little when he talks about Carlyle, but He references Schiller's letters upon the aesthetical education of man, which lays out a schema by which aesthetics creates moral or like spiritual development, Mm -hmm. and how the contemplation of aesthetic beauty actually is like a civilizing sort of thing, like creates a greater human harmony. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting book that long. It's definitely like worth no, it's like It's like 100 pages or something like that. But his quote here that he pulls from it, where Schiller is discussing man in a mechanistic world, I thought it was worth reading. He says, Go uh, for it. Man himself, eternally chained down to a little fragment of the whole, only forms a kind of fragment. Having nothing in his ears but the monotonous sound of the perpetually revolving wheel, he never develops the harmony of his being. And instead of imprinting the seal of humanity on his being, he ends by being nothing more than the living impress of the craft to which he devotes himself, of the science that he cultivates. This very partial and paltry relation, linking the isolated members to the whole, does not depend on the forms that are given spontaneously. For how could a complicated machine, which shuns the light, confide itself to the free will of man? Which is a little bit obscure, but drawing out of that like a machine functions by having parts that by themselves are kind of nothing. like at least in this time we're talking about like mechanisms and putting them together they perform a function and quite a few people from at least schiller onward well into the 20th century will make the observation that when you also so order society, what then becomes a man when he is merely a part? Mm-hmm. You might think like, that's stupid. However, <laughs> I think it's not for nothing as we were, you know, it's a consideration that's kind of been here since we talked about Jefferson Yeoman mm-hmm. farming where it's not just because that's nice that he likes, but because he sees it as the basis for a stable civilizational effort that won't crumble due to, like, disparity or... The appetites. Yeah, the appetites overwhelming people or, like, the development of complicated forms of bondage into each other, which Mm -hmm. is something he found abhorrent. And so, for him, self-sufficiency and a kind of, like... Like in himself, is sort of like this totality that can su- suffice himself and then lives in community after that. Is a means of preventing these forms of bondage and of maintaining a kind of stability and like sort of a balance that is not easily upset by the vicissitudes of time and life. And I think that we're seeing that kind of like in Schiller, sort of emerging face of the variance of industrial life and machine production is, you know, it's that being written in what is it, 1795 It's is 1795. kind of amazing because well, like well,
0: four years after Tenchcox's like initial forays into public speaking on the salutary impact and different impact of industrialization in America.
1: Right. Like he's prefiguring so much of what we're going to later associate with Marx, Carl in parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, like the idea of nation, which is going to come up very shortly. Things like, that. and just the way in which machines make life easier, but do they maintain the societal basis for like a Republican form of life? We'll say because that's right. the American concern.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, and then there—I mean, this will show up again in the '60s with the appropriate technology movement and things like this. Whole Earth Catalog, whatever. I used Mm -hmm. to be so dismissive of this stuff, but now I like, uh, actually, Stuart Brand has some of his, I mean, he's pro nuclear, so he's a little bit different. And he's pro GMO. He's very different than his peers. But he's all over on Works in Progress. You can find him working on his new book in public on like maintenance society. And it is fascinating. It's a great read. But like what I will say is that you have to understand part of what people are doing is trying to figure out how to resolve the major political problem that technical expertise introduces into the Republic. Right? Like, I think that's the easiest way to think about it Mm -hmm. is that it's like, if we're joined in this project of a Republican democracy, then we have to have some level of parity when it comes to what we can discursively hash out together. If there are like real and actual disparities in what we can communicate effectively to each other, then there are going to be very, perhaps very adverse political outcomes from that. To put it in plain language, you know, I don't know if, so people might be a fan of Bethany McLean. She wrote the piece that basically started to send Enron into the deep waters and then co-authored The Smartest Guys in the Room. She's just co-authored a new book, and I was sort of flipping through, just skimming it, so don't totally quote me on this. Her new book, and it's about how the COVID lockdowns were a failure. They were an experiment based on not very good information. They were done with, like, sort of an insane amount of haste and, like, I don't know what she says about social coercion, but I think there was definitely some of that in there. And that they were probably bad on the whole from what, you know, her and this other person she worked with on it. Now, I haven't read the thing in its entirety, but she's a very like mainstream voice who has a lot of credibility. And all of those arguments were basically appeals to expert authority. Right? Like that is the type of problem that people aren't envisioning when they do this. And yes, they have all sorts of crazy conspiratorial ideas that are wrong about how our energy system works. And that doesn't mean that people who have a critique of centralization or bureaucracy or expertise are right all of the time, or even understand what the hell that they're talking about. All that we mean is that we haven't resolved this problem yet. In fact, I don't even think we're anywhere near resolving this problem. It might even be worse now than it was back then. Oh, for sure. Of, all
1: I could, like, know. when you mentioned all of that stuff, all I could think was, like, at least then it was mostly theoretical on yeah. some level, like, it was an impending. But now I'm, like, the degree to which we live under, like, a sort of pervasive and general learned helplessness among the, like, body of citizens, where, you know, like, how could you even... We can't even begin to address, like, or not it's possible for everyone to gain a level of understanding that permits a general discourse because people are not even willing to concede that they're capable of making that effort and it's (laughs) funny and you can be like oh like they're stupid or whatever i think it's like that's kind of like the way that it's set up into this too much but just there is a certain level of institutional dependence which is just inculcated from you know a very young age today and it makes it very hard to even tell someone, like, if you paid enough attention in math class, like, you don't need to be a mathematician to be able to, like, read something technical and get an understanding of it. Yeah. It's not as hard as you think it is. And, like, schooling more or less could have prepared you. Just, it's difficult to even get there because the first block is always, like, I don't care. Trust the experts. Shut up. And so that's kind of worrisome.
0: Right. You know, and sometimes, frankly, the experts are right. I mean, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you're pro-nuclear. And there were plenty of people that were part of expert institutions that were absolutely 100% right for like half a century against a rising tide of completely disinformed public opinion (laughs) against it. Right. So it's not all one way or the other, but in fact, the fact that it's not all one way or the other suggests this is a very sophisticated problem. So. Let's peel pull it back to the text now. We're going to talk about Thomas Carlyle. And Thomas Car- Carlyle is going to introduce, I think, something that will sound familiar to any reader who pays attention to anything anyone says about technology today, right? Like you can see this in the discussion about AI and like chat GPT, for example, right? So he is going to talk about, he doesn't say industrial revolution. He does talk about industrialization and what he thinks is happening is that our society is becoming mechanized in two real senses. And the first one is just sort of what we've been talking about. It's the outward sense of it, where we are starting to do more tasks with bigger machines, right? We are improving our lot. As he says, we war with rude nature and by our resistless engines come off always victorious and loaded with spoils. I mean, you can sort of feel a certain level of British disdain dripping off of that last sentence. I don't think he means it quite genuinely, but that is what he's trying to capture. And then the second one is, as he puts it like this, it's sort of the machine cell, the inward mechanization of the human subject, which he says has a similar tendency. There's an excessive emphasis upon means as against ends, a preoccupation with the external arrangement of human affairs, as against their inner meaning and consequences. Other people call this the disenchantment of the world, you know, or just sort of the materialization in the most vulgar sense of human society. And Carlyle is more sophisticated than many of the other people who will level the same critique in sort of the most facile and annoying way possible. But I think that dichotomy sort of helps us understand that things are starting to shift as the romantic movement takes root in response to industrialization. And now there is a reconsideration of essence itself as a real thing in human life and what that means and what a rightly ordered life is supposed to look like a rightly ordered society is supposed to look like in the face of rapid change in both the self and society as they see it, right?
1: Yeah, this section was, I had maybe mixed feelings about it, but I understand the limitations because you really have to deal with like choosing sign of the times is good because lots of people in America read it and for our purposes, that's what's important. But I think you come off with a very, like, deracinated Carlyle, unfortunately, as a sure, result yeah. of talking a little bit about Only One Work. Because a lot of, like, the force of what he was trying to do, I think, is kind of inescapably linked to the way he wrote, which is not something I'll get into. But I think if you read him, you would understand kind of immediately that, like, the prose is almost, like, half of the argument, whether or mm-hmm. not you think that's right or not you know whatever and there's also a sense in which he changed a lot as a thinker but one thing i'll mention which didn't really come into view that much in the chapter but it's worth noting is carlisle wrote one of the most interesting books about the french revolution where a lot of the major revolutionaries are very heroically and like tragically portrayed he was also a variety of revolution. Movements like play very favorably in a lot of his writing, even if what they immediately resulted in is immediately denounced by him. And I think that's important understanding the view which he is taking. Like, if you read his writing on monarchy as it existed in the immediately pre Enlightenment time, it is given very little, like, you know, warm feeling at all. Mm-hmm. He essentially says, like, you know, these, you know, monarch, like absolutist monarchies that were set up were you know, they were not kings. They were just people wearing crowns. Um, it's kind of a big thing for him is that these mm-hmm. things were mere shadows of what they were supposed to be. And they were justly overthrown because Carlyle being your communicator of German idealism into the English speaking world, you see a lot of a certain kind of Hegelian further. He also did a lot with Schelling, I think. This idea of progressive history, like, is also there in Carlisle. Like, Carlisle is not necessarily like an anti-progress writer. Like, Marx doesn't, does, doesn't...
0: Leo Marx does bring that up. He's like, by the way, yeah. in case you think that this guy is just a reactionary, he's like, look, I'm not saying it's wrong for us to improve our lot. He's like, I'm not even saying that things are gonna get worse. He's like, I'm saying I have some reservations about certain aspects
1: of this. Yeah, and I think what's important about that is. He believes in progress, but he doesn't necessarily believe that what is good and orderly is always going to pro- predominate over what is chaotic and destructive. And I think that he senses a great foreboding in a lot of what he's saying in his lifetime as herald of destruction and chaos and kind of a <laughs> real lack of any kind of reflective capacity for understanding like the purpose of a human life what It means to have a human will, what it means to live and like live well to do something meaningful like these kinds of questions are starting to die, and you're starting to see people who push numbers around all day and go home and like that's what life is. It's a very common critique, even today, or you know, like the little prince might be Carlyle, I don't know, but yeah, there's a certain sense in which. He's trying to marry a lot of disparate points of view, at least from our perspective, and in, into something kind of unique. And it's sort of unfortunate, I think, that he's as forgotten as he is today by most people who are like Curtis Yarvin guys, I guess. But <laughs> you know, he's interesting. He's fun to read. Definitely recommend. But for the purposes of the American experience, he presented a very widely read and major assault on. The nascent industrialization of the world, or at least of Europe at that time, which generated the American response.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is, as Leo Marx includes it here, he says, The appreciated connection between the typical emotional crises of the age and industrialization becomes most obvious in Carlyle's work Sartor Resartus*. This book, which Emerson read just before writing Nature, and which Melville read not long before writing Moby Dick, was to have an immense influence in America. Although not written in the pastoral mode, it embodies attitudes which were easily assimilated to American pastoralism. Right, So that's why Leo Marx does this seeming detour into this. I think it's really important because these questions come up again and again, you, you start to wonder whether these questions are just like a permanent, unfixable feature, whether it's possible to even broker this middle way between the will nature and art artifice or what, like, is the pastoral as this middle link even possible? I think that's what's profound about what Leo Marx is doing is that John, now we're talking before we hit record, is that now that we've, you know, we're more than halfway through this book, I see this everywhere now. I see it like all the, I see it in advertising. I see it in products. I see it in literature. I see it in op eds I read now. Even if it's just in the background and the op ed really isn't about things like the environment or whatever, like it just seems like this subroutine operating in American letters, probably in Anglosphere letters and maybe even beyond. I'm just, you know, unfortunately, woefully a provincial American. And so I can only speak to my own context. I wouldn't imagine to speak for anyone else's. So we get the signs of the times, and then we immediately spend some time with an American's response in the North American Review to it. By the way, North American Review, I believe, still exists. Uh, And the response is basically like, Yule cowards don't even smoke crack. What's up with that? You know, (laughs) the guy is basically like, look, it doesn't matter. Like, you're just a whiner. Like, we're so back, you know, we're killing it. We're industrializing whether you like it or not. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Like, that is the atmosphere that Leo Marx captures so well as the dawn of industrialization happens, is that it's basically a bunch of people saying, zero trade-offs, my guy. Nothing's going to go wrong. Like, it is our God-given duty to approve this stuff. The world is our domain to master, and we can master it. And anybody who says that there might be trade-offs is a big whiny beep. And that's it. Like, I want to say that it's like, oh, it's this more sophisticated thing. Certainly, Leo Marx spends a lot of time uh, providing exegesis of this response to Thomas Carlyle. But that is, without exaggeration, the tenor of its response.
1: And it kind of inaugurates a, a long amount of time where that is really like the way in which people talk about technology. It's especially as soon as you get the train and the laying of the track and trains are starting to move people around. It is at least in Leo Marx's telling very difficult to find anyone who is not stoked like a hundred percent on all mm-hmm. you know? and there's not even the
0: there's not even the Republican doubt, like, oh, maybe we'll have these asymmetries that we were talking about. They were like, No, the machine will also equalize everyone even more.
1: Yeah. It's like Atmosphere, I just, we think of like you're like at a Skrillex concert and it's like twenty
0: twenty eleven <laughs> or something. The dog, interest rates are so low right now. <laughs> They're going to stay this way.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I mean, like Leo Marx will go on to say, like, let's be fair to them. It's easy to see how they thought this. And that's all you know, very true. And also, they
0: aren't completely wrong. Like, there are yeah. some amazing. American innovation, right? Like, so I think something like 10 years after size of the Time comes out, W.B. Morse, like, provides his major innovations and creations in the telegraph machinery, right? Like, telegraphs have a very complex role to play in Thoreau's Walden, surprisingly, and how he sees the relationship between man in nature and art in nature brokered i don't know if we're going to get into this in leo marx's book but it's definitely present there but anyway this is all to say that like this the steamboat the steam engine like all of this stuff is truly amazing in all sorts of ways like i am also still a big fan like i have critiques of technology and industrial life and at the same time i look at this stuff I mean, obviously I run Nuclear Barbarians. I'm also amazed by its power. I'm like filled with a sort of frisson of ambivalence about, (laughs) about it. And I don't think that'll ever change. But I appreciate that Leo Marx is like, look, like we need to better appreciate what these guys were saying and what they were doing and why, because it is so easy to caricature them as a bunch of annoying boosters. And I should be clear, Leo Marx... This was written in 1949 as his thesis, as his dissertation. And it took him another like the five or eight years to polish it up into book form. So this is like really before the major environmental movement stuff starts happening. This is him like writing in the like apex of American industrial life. Right? He enters college at the beginning of the New Deal. Right. So this is a guy who has sort of begun this trajectory and sustained it for a very long period of time. But before, and when we talk about the afterword at the end of the book, we're going to get into this with him. But before a lot of the common memes really solidified in the 60s and 70s. So it's a very fascinating document from like post atomic America, but right before the cultural backlash of the 60s. And so he's in a great vantage to say, why don't we give these tech boosters their due, because we should respect them as people who made arguments worth considering. And I think if you're a fan of the show you can kind of invent the arguments for yourself, you probably make them all the time. Would, any, would I want to go back and live in the 1850s? I would probably be 4'11 and I have hookworm, to be honest, <laughs> right? Like, that would be my life, you know? Like, let's be for real. I was a colicky baby. Maybe I just would have died. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, things were very brutal and hard. And there's also, I think, great power in the Promethean aspect of this. But what the romantic element imbues, right, is Tubal Cain, right? You know this term, right, John? The Tubal Cain, descendant of Cain from the Bible, who is a smith. He makes all things iron. Right, And so the Janus face of technology in the West now is between Prometheus, who sacrifices himself to give us the gift of Artifice, and Tubal-Cain, the descendant of the first murderer.
1: Oh, there's, well, let's, it's, there's an amazing Merchant dog book. It's all about alchemy. I forget what it is, shamanism and alchemy. He has this extended section where he goes through every myth. In the way mm. in which every smith, like greater Indo European mythology, is always heavily disfigured in some way. Sort Hephaestus. of relates to that. Yeah. Yeah. faced this. There's like a Anglo Saxon one. I can't remember right now, but there's a lot of them. Odin hangs himself to a tree and loses an eye ot- in order to gain the knowledge of the runes, which is a kind of technical knowledge of these magical ways of having effects in the world. And he relates all of these things to the actual, I don't know how tested this is, but physically snits were often put on the boundary of society because mm-hmm. they were rightly seen as dealing with things that were fairly powerful and like not necessarily great. So even though they're necessary, you also don't want them that close because it is it is sometimes malevolent that they're dealing with. And mm-hmm. So these sort of people who have become maimed to gain a kind of knowledge and then to create things with have often paid a heavy price. And then they become very ambivalent figures. And these like sort of early societies this is the kind of the point he wants to make. But I think, you know, as you just said, it's the Janus, like, it's still very operative, like in our way of thinking. like, there's yeah, something it's there. to it. It's right there. real. Like, you can't really go one way or the other, because just that just doesn't align with reality. I think it's like sort of Maybe. Well, it's
0: I, as simple as this, right? We can put it in really simple language. If it's powerful, it's of great consequence. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Right. you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't say like, it's super powerful and don't even worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like nothing to see here. And a lot of that has to do with what is the relationship between means and ends. Mm-hmm. Right, Which and that, that's sort this, that's sort of this whole undercurrent that's happening here is that there seems to be like the assumption that stuff will sort itself out down the line or that you don't have to consider it, and I get that because I mean that's really like a knowledge problem. It's hard to know ahead of time what your downstream consequences are going to be, and you also don't want to live in a society so paralyzed by safetyism that no one does anything because we've also seen that become a different dictatorship of expertise
1: i definitely agree with you basically totally on i think maybe i don't know the force of carlisle's critique will be easier to see when we go further in time because i think for him The kind of society that he was finding himself at odds with was British society as it entered really, like, the height of imperialism. And, like, you know, I think he famously said that they should, like, blow up the home or the foreign office or whatever. Like,
0: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like him.
1: And you... It's not something we have the time to talk about here, but there's, like, it's not for nothing that, like, he sees a lot of very pernicious things start to occur in like the world that he's from and there is a way in which you know look at the uk today <laughs> you know drop yeah. like yeah whatever they did i could that they were very you will say, like proud of like the sun never sets on the british empire well, well now it barely shines on the british empire like yeah. there's something to that and i think Carlyle, you know, getting into like the whole scope of his writing, was able to sort of see the ways in which their grasp on what life and how to run a society was maybe becoming less than satisfactory.
0: And yeah, that's, no, I agree. Pull- that's
1: that's a large part, I think, of what we are still like finding under consideration here in Leo Marx, or like things that keep coming up again and again. I would say it's not technology as such or technology. It's really us.
0: Yeah, it's really us. I mean, this is a product of us. And so it's about what is our relationship to each other? And also there's sort of almost this sort of like human theodicy problem where it's like, can we create things that are beyond our own understanding or our own control? And what does that mean? And what does that mean for anyone who wants to live in a democracy? All very salient questions right? So we need to go through real quickly, what are sort of the major themes of this industrial boosterism that we're seeing, right? And so we're just, I'm just going to do a fly-by-night tour because, frankly, he's so exhaustive without being exhausting, which is hard to do on something like this here. But it really helps you understand the era of American technological enthusiasm, which some would argue isn't even really in full flower when Leo Marx is covering it, right? So Thomas P. Hughes' uh, famous book, American Genesis, charts it from 1870 to 1970. So Leo Marx is, is suggesting that you can push it back even further to the 1830s, right? So the major themes are going to be the machine and nature. And this is going to be like, we can totally synthesize these things. Don't even worry about it right? Like, they are not opposed at all. This is playing on the themes of Tench Cox, you know, even in the post-Carlisle world. Like, in a way, they will improve upon each other. We see this argument today, right? This is like pure Breakthrough Institute talk. And everybody knows I've had BTI people here. I've been to their conference. Love those people. I love their ideas about industrial development as a way to steward and preserve and help and take care of the wildlands and things like that and that these things can be brokered in a way. There is not nothing to that argument, right? So that's Leo Marx doing his due diligence and say, try to respect these guys for what they're thinking. Because you have to consider his audience. It's going to be a bunch of other literary intellectuals who are probably predisposed to not like the machine as much as they like the garden, right? Number two, the machine in history. This is basically the idea of industrial progress. Like you already know what it is, right? Like that's the... We walk around with that, especially those of us who really love nuclear in sort of our back pockets, right? That, that this is a possible thing that we can alleviate and improve the human condition over time by nature of artifice industry, technology, those things. Right. Okay. And then the fourth one is yeah. I've got one, two, three, right. Is going to be the machine and america and this is the question of the republic that john and i were addressing before right so there are a few reasons for people seeing the machine as having a very quote-unquote natural place in american life and not as a threat to the republic so one of them is just the idea of the pursuit of happiness at all as enshrined in our founding documents that sort of gives us license to do this. The fact that it's a commercial republic, not a martial republic, you know, not a, uh, a republic with monarchical features or anything like that, but a merchant republic sort of puts us in line to lean into industrialization as it starts to bloom. We see it, as Leo Marx says, as our birthright and that democracy and the machine work hand in hand for this pursuit of happiness, right? It is something we're all doing together. Again, that plays in, in with American geography, which everyone saw at the time as way more level and dispersed than anything that was going on in the old world. You're just not seeing people with their castles everywhere. That doesn't happen here, right? And you're like you go see a castle in Europe, and you're like, oh my god, that's a like legit castle, like right out of like the, all the fantasy novels I grew up with. People who are European are probably like laughing at me now. Because they're like, yeah, of course, it's like down the block or whatever. Um, but you grow up here and you, go to, and you go to like Monticello. It's just like not even on the same scale. Mount Vernon like can't even hold a candle to it. It is so much like flatter.
1: <laughs> you know? Much less um, like the Coliseum or, you know, like you have dude, so yeah. many layers.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that's why there's this idea, even the the Jacksonians, right? These guys who were insistent on sort of a continuation of uh, a laissez-faire Jeffersonianism that had to do with the yeoman Farmer and the expansion of the flat franchise and Manifest Destiny, expanding westward and things like that. They were talking, according to Marx, uh, and he lays out this, some gestural evidence here in terms of political and pastoral synthesis with industry on the whole, right? So he sort of Tease us up here for when he starts to talk about the railroad, which is really, I think, can be summed up in you start to see some obscure thinkers in New England who are more romantic, basically, like they're forerunners to Thoreau or whoever. And then we have Mr. Webster, Daniel Webster himself of Webster's Dictionary fame, one of the most famous rhetoricians in America at the time, who speaks at a bunch of railroad openings and he's like, this shit is off the chain. It rules nothing to worry about. Don't even worry. I don't even worry about my land getting messed up because I'm not a whiner baby and like the machine is just as cool, if not cooler than the land, right? Because it collapses time and space. It allows rich and poor people to use it. It will free us up to enjoy the fruits of nature ever more. And then this guy in Vermont, I think Orville is his last name, who I mean, again, you can sort of, there's nothing remarkable about this guy other than he was like, stood apart at this time. Orvis is his name. And he says, you know, there's an inconsistency, as Leo Marx writes, between industrialization and pastoral ideas. Webster elides this, Orvis insists on it. And so these tensions are sort of at play here. Another very subtle but interesting point, Mm -hmm. Marx sort of leaves by the wayside as he says, You know, the defense of the pastoral is very different in the North compared to the South. The defense of the pastoral in the South, and this is true even with guys like John Ransom Crow and Alan Tate in the early 20th century with the Southern agrarian writers, are like either lost palsers after the Civil War, or they are guys who are defending the slave system as such, right? So like they have their own motivations for it. Marx is more interested in the Yankee problem, I think, because it has more to do with, frankly, what becomes the actual state of the Union after the Civil War and how we receive that. But that's sort of what he's looking at. And he starts to gesture towards Whitman and Emerson as the preeminent American thinkers and writers who try to broker this relationship between the pastoral and the industrial at the end. And that's sort of how we end this chapter. The next chapter is called Two Kingdoms of Force. So I think you can kind of project into that or imagine that is going to really be about how these things are at loggerheads and collide into each other and create in a very... Amer- that is like, I think Leo Mar should argue, p- part of the expression of American arts and letters.
1: Yeah, I, but he, you know, you put it really well when he said in the sentimental guise the pastoral ideal remained in service long after the machine's appearance in the landscape and it enabled the nation to continue defining its purpose as the pursuit of rural happiness while devoting itself to productivity, wealth, and power. You know, like if he ended the book there, I would be like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're like, like, oh yeah, that's real. It describes so much of it, maybe what's initially kind of confusing about political and cultural rhetoric today, even Mm -hmm. when you, it all can seem to have nothing to do with certain physical realities. We'll just put it that way or have a strange remove from them as if it's articulating like a a different view of society than, than what seems to actually exist. It's more complicated than as, as he says, and it'll be, you know, the subject for maybe our best literary men who we visit soon.
0: They are going to take it up for sure. I'm actually realizing that I think I skipped over three, the enumeration of themes, and yet I'm having trouble finding it in the book. Ah, sorry. Number three, between the machine and history and the machine in America is the machine and mind. And basically, it's just the argument that there's going to have like a salutary impact on the American mind that actually it is industrial achievements that are more important than the letters. What could the Iliad compare to the steam engine or the locomotive is like something somebody unironically says in the sort of buffet of uh, pro-industrial things, which is not to denigrate the machine engine at all, uh, I, from my perspective, but shows the sort of extreme lengths to which these guys were sort of making these rhetorical arguments. The extent to which they believed that the practical arts had so overtaken what was previously understood as the liberal arts in America. And this is something Tocqueville notices in Democracy in America as well, right? Like well, He it's... sees it almost as like Tocqueville is even more, I think, radical in his appreciation of it, where he sees that as almost like the folkways of America are like pragmatic Cartesianism over <laughs> and against any sort of like heritage style cultural transmission from
1: Europe. Which was fascinating about that he kind of identifies as like the anti-intellectual strain
0: of American Mm -hmm.
1: thought like about the machine. Like pro-machine, anti-intellect, I guess you could call it. He, he,
0: Dude, even anti-theoretical machine
1: They were saying like, you know, there's basically no use to the theorems coming out of Cambridge and, you know, like Oxford now. Like true high science.
0: I'm in my workshop, dog. uh,
1: Yeah, exactly. It's extremely like Fascinating for a number of reasons. You know, like obviously this podcast wouldn't be here if that were true. <laughs> but nonetheless, there is a it's extremely like ambiguous because on one hand it's you call it democratic. There was a sense in which like act of working with machinery. You could have like a democratic vision of like garage inventors, you know, like you just like all over america and like now that the new practicality reigns like this is the way in which machinery is democratized it's like everybody has a free hand and kind of like doing stuff with it which did not really pan out that way at the end of the day just simply because of the nature of scale of production and expertise nonetheless
0: and physics right F- as somebody once told me physics favors scale
1: mhm you, you know, know like
0: that like some sometimes it's just that it's like that simple
1: But it, you know, in many ways, it's still it's not a position that really aligns neatly with anything we think today. Which I think is just something that comes up for me again and again, whenever we read something like this or lash or anything. It's like people were thinking ways, which to us are now very strange at times.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, like very familiar. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's very fascinating. So I found this chapter to sort of wrap up here more intellectually invigorating than the garden. I thought there was a lot, the things that I got out of the garden were frankly things about the relationship between science, aesthetics, and philosophy and the Anglosphere that I did not synthesize before or fully appreciate. So I thought that was, for me, those were the most excellent parts of Leo Marx's work in that chapter. This one, I thought his survey Of pro-industrial literature and how he introduces Carlyle and situates it was far more artful, I think, to me. It had a, I think, a higher register of rhetoric, and I'm so thrilled for the last and longest chapter in this book next, which I think we're going to have to split in two because it is 120 pages. Um, Yeah. So we'll talk about that after we record about how you and I are going to divvy that up, but. I think that with that, we're going to get into even richer territory. And once we move the afterward, it'll give us a vantage um, in the final episode to talk about where we might be now in the age of the climate discourse, to talk about the nature of the pastoral in America, and how we even think about small-scale producerism after the garage startup guy idea has so changed into the hedge fund venture capital idea guy. In Silicon Valley, right? So sort of that last iteration of the people to pick up that battle standard for the small scale, sort of uh, by the uh, skin of their teeth and by their own grit and gumption sort of creator to what we have now. I think that all of that stuff is in the running here. And I hope you guys enjoy it because this is a lot of fun. And remember, you can always go back and pre-listen to stuff. And I highly, as always, encourage you to read the book yourself uh john do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up here
1: i think he said it all
0: <laughs> Well, well thank you buddy okay everybody remember stay sharp stay strong and stay radiant we will see you next time